All Amazon sellers hate going out of stock with their best-selling products. But if you're a seven-figure seller, you'll be losing hundreds of thousands of dollars this Q4. Your spreadsheets just don't predict stock needs accurately. And if you have hundreds of products or even thousands, you just can't manage them that way anyway. Staying in stock is the key to profits, especially this Q4. Eva's software predicts accurately what stock you need based on big data plus your seller account. And unlike rules-based systems, it learns and improves over time. Eva also optimizes the price of each product for profit and to stay in stock. Eva now has hundreds of happy seven and eight figure sellers in the USA and is now available for UK and European based sellers. To get a 15 day free trial, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A and try it out for yourself. Ladles and Jelly Spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10 Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers, a subset of the amazing FBA podcast family. Today, we are talking about a really important topic, which is how to get the best price for your FBA business. Lots of people are talking about selling their business, but actually the nuts and bolts of it and the on approach to it. So not just a few months before, but what are you actually building? All of that stuff has really got to be thought through in advance. So we've got a great expert with us today, Thomas Smale of FE International. Thomas is a, the founder and CEO. They've been in business since 2010, I believe, roughly. And okay. uh, he's a serial business entrepreneur and M&A expert. And he's uh, built a very substantial team there. They've had over a thousand business sales. So they really know their stuff in this, this space. And that's really important because quite a few people have come into this space, M&A space, about three minutes ago, it seems. So Thomas, good to have somebody with some serious background behind them. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks so much for inviting me on. My pleasure. So we've given a very quick intro about yourself. I guess we've probably got uh, enough to know, but if there's anything else you think we should know that gives you, you know, the expertise to talk about this, then what, what, should, what else we need to know about you and FE International? Yeah, so we've been, as you mentioned, we've been in business about 11 years now. So I guess we predate uh, anything FBA. I mean, Amazon has been around for a while, but we predate anyone building FBA businesses and selling them. So we work with a range of different businesses in the Amazon business and the Amazon space and also outside of the industry as well. But we work with software companies, content-based businesses. So we have a lot that overlaps the Amazon world. It may well be we've sold software businesses, which help Amazon sellers. We've sold Amazon, we've sold regular e-commerce businesses, which don't necessarily sell on Amazon. Um, we've sold content businesses, which talk about Amazon. So have a lot of experience in the space. And I guess we've been around for longer than aggregators. And like you said, a lot of the kind of newer brokers who have like popped up in the last um, couple of years. We have, I mean, the name is FE International. And I guess that's intentional. Like we have a team all over the world. So I'm English, but I'm based in San Francisco. We have a team in London. Our head office is now in New York. We also have a team in Miami. And over the last couple of years, I think like most companies, we started to build out a bit of a remote team as well. So across everything we do at the moment, we have about 110 people in the M&A side of the business is about half, except primarily based in New York, London, and then a growing number of remote people. And we're very much a, what we would describe as a full service M&A firm. So mergers and acquisitions, you could also describe it as a, a business broker on the lower end, but essentially we work with people from valuation, so establishing what their business is worth all the way through to like finally executing sale. And we work just with sellers. So sellers are the ones that pay us, sellers are our clients. And we go through the whole process with them, kind of handhold, negotiate 
and do absolutely everything throughout that process. Um, right. And you mentioned you've closed over a thousand deals, it's just over a, over a billion dollars in total value. So we work with a real range of businesses. You could be making a millionaire on Amazon. You could be making $50 million a year. Like we've seen it all and we'll work with a range. Hmm. Wow. So that's, uh, yeah, that's certainly quite the, the impressive numbers. So the main thing we're going to talk about today is the value question. And so the main question is what are the val- elements that drive value or price? And I guess we've got to keep in mind the audience of people who aren't ready to sell, which at any given point is a small percentage of even, you know, seven figure business owners, I guess. Right. But let's think about it from the broader perspective of building value. And then eventually that shows up when you sell, right? What are those elements that build the value in a business? Yeah. So, I mean, f- firstly, there are lots of factors that go into it. I think some people fall into the trap of oversimplifying it and saying, oh, what, what's the formula? There's no formula where you can just take X, multiply it by Y and end up with a valuation. If it was that simple, then it, it just companies like us would not be in business. So we look at lots of different variables. I say probably some of the most important ones, like revenue and grossing are important and all the factors relating to that as well. So is revenue growing and is gross income growing? There's no point kind of revenue growing if you're then losing money because you're spending a lot on ads, which definitely happens on the Amazon platform. You can see businesses which top line are growing, but over time their return on ad spend is decreasing. Hmm. Um, so the top line might look good, but the the bottom line or at least gross profit doesn't quite look so good. Um, so gross so income, gross- just to check, you mean gross profit, so profit after direct costs, uh, cost of goods sold, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. So under that definition, we would include ad spend. And then also net income, which is, I guess, the line below that by the time you take into account fixed over. That's also important as well. So you can't just have growing revenue. You also need to have growing gross profit and also growing net profit, at least for like a high valuation. It doesn't mean your business is unsellable if not. I mean, a lot of the businesses we represent, FE International, I guess the time where people decide they're ready to sell is when the business is quite flat. So there's still buyers out there, but from a valuation perspective, you get a premium for a business is growing. I guess it kind of sounds obvious, but that's the way buyers will look at it. So those are probably the most important factors. I think a lot of people then, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about valuation. I think things that people don't really care about are things like how many SKUs do you have? You don't get paid more for a business if you have 100 SKUs or 10 SKUs or less if you have a thousand or whatever that might be, as long as it makes sense for the business, then it's not going to affect the valuation. So there's no correct number. You might get told that by different people or buyers might have criteria around the number of SKUs, but there's, there's, there's nothing like that. So you shouldn't be afraid to launch more products or discontinue products because you feel like you might have too many. Because ultimately that really comes down to your business and the processes and the team, if you're building a team, like what they're working on and what they understand. Like if you have a good process for launching more SKUs and some, some businesses will just need a lot of them. Like maybe you have like different colors, different sizes. You can end up with essentially one central product that has a hundred, a hundred SKUs. So things like that really don't matter. Like ultimately buyers care about growth. Buyers care about being able to take over the business. This is a little bit more subjective from a valuation perspective, but it's essentially like what does your supply chain and logistics look like? Is the supplier your brother or is the supplier kind of not someone anyone can go to, but is it a kind of a real relationship that's going to continue on an ongoing basis? Buyers then care about the fulfillment process. So some people are just using, I guess as the name suggests, 
fulfillment by Amazon. So it'll literally just be shipping it directly to Amazon. Most Amazon sellers we see will at least touch the product between the supplier and Amazon. So maybe they're packing it themselves. Maybe they're doing some form of, of special packaging or inspecting the product or whatever that, that might be. So a lot of the businesses we see on the Amazon space have maybe a warehouse or a storage unit. Maybe they even operate it out there in garage, whatever it might be. So it doesn't, from a valuation perspective, it doesn't really matter which of those you have. The important part is, can it be taken over? If it's going to be hard to take over, that's going to hinder the valuation. If it's easy to take over, then that's not a problem. So we're currently in the middle of closing a deal at the moment. And the seller operates a business literally out of his own garage. The buyer is acquiring the business. He's going to be operating outside his garage. So this morning before I got on this call, our team are trying to, in the process of literally booking a removal van to take a all of the product from basically one side of America to the other. So the reality is on paper, that sounds really messy, but the reality is that's how a lot of businesses um, work and like moving stock around is kind of normal. Buyers understand they have to... Yeah. Um, but I understand they have to do that. So having kind of reliable supply chain all the way from supply through to physically selling it on Amazon is important. Um, the industry you're in does also, this is again, I think one of those things where there's sometimes a little bit of misinformation out there. The industry you're in doesn't really matter. Like some industries buyers will just not be comfortable with. So for example, supplements is probably quite a common one that, that we see that might be like vitamin supplements or whatever it might be. Some acquirers just don't want to touch it. But that does not necessarily mean that the valuation is is low or lower than a business where everybody likes it as an industry. So you also shouldn't worry too much about that. I think a lot of people hear that, oh, like supplements is a bad industry or a good industry, think that makes a difference. It really doesn't. There are some, some products that people might not like, as like a large group may not like, but I say... Generally, if it can be sold on Amazon in the first place, then it probably will not affect valuation. So yeah, like I said, there is a lot of misinformation about valuation, but ultimately buyers care about a business that's growing, a business that's profitable, or at least has a path to profitability, and a business that they can take over and reliably believe is going to continue like that. So there's a supply relationship, there's some form of logistics process from getting the product from the supplier to the end consumer via Amazon and that's working well. And then I guess all the obvious stuff is like, is your Amazon account in good standing? If not, what have you done to put in place to make sure that it, it will be? Because particularly almost every big Amazon account I've ever seen has some sort of have had issues with Amazon before, whether it's um, removing products or whether it's some form of warning. I mean, you know more about this stuff than me, but there's all sorts of different stuff they can... Yeah, there are lots of ways Amazon with. can ding you. Yeah, it, and as you say, it's a bit like Amazon themselves. You can get reinstated from all sorts of things most of the time if you have a really intelligent, well-thought-through, well-articulated plan of action, as they call it in the Amazon world. And, and I guess your buyers are looking for something similar, right? If you've done something that didn't work out or you've annoyed your platform, platform partner, then what have, what have you got in place to minimize the chance of that happening again? Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It's not that it should never have happened because mm, buyers understand if you're build, building a business, it does yeah. not always go perfectly. That's almost like feels more genuine than a business that seems yeah. perfect because yes, that's it, never it the case. Be. 
Yeah, there's no such thing as a perfect. You know, I, I think entrepreneurs tend to cut corners a bit in the early stages, and that makes sense in the sense there's less to lose. But then, obviously, when buyers are doing their due diligence and looking under the the carpet, they discover these things, and and there are there's there's levels of it, right? And I, it's I noticed that the more the bigger the business that somebody has, the more sensibly they tend to behave, and that makes total sense to me as a risk reward sort of judgment. And and I guess that sensible buyers are going to have that in place, and and I guess a few buyers are going to just be scared about everything and. Probably won't buy anything anyway. Just a couple of reflections on that. Obviously, good correction to some of the stuff out there. It's not so much misinformation if a particular aggregator is quite big and putting a lot of information about their buying criteria. That is accurate as far as it goes, but it's only one one entity's buying criteria. I guess what you're saying is there's a market out there for lots of different businesses. So if it's not growing but a bit flat, there are still buyers out there as long as you're realistic about valuation. Good good point. Thank you for making that point because some people, once you've got your baby, you know, everyone's a bit blind about their baby, aren't they? And their, their children are one blind spot and their business is another. And the other thing you said that's interesting is that it doesn't matter how many SKUs you have. Now, my, my question around that, like I've spoken to a few aggregators and they want to plug... Uh, a business into their own business and obviously if you've got a thousand SKUs in order to produce say 200,000 in um, EBITDA or something versus um, 10 there's going to be a much bigger management overhead I imagine for the same sort of outcome I mean how do you approach that when you're trying to find buyers for a business yeah so I think firstly like I said buyers will have lots of different criteria so I guess the name for aggregators specifically who are not the only buyers out there because as the name suggests they're aggregating they want it generally to be as simple as simple as possible. And that part of their criteria is around simplicity. But in, in my mind, firstly, our job is to bring multiple buyers to the table. So it may be aggregators, but it will probably be other buyers as well. And there are lots of buyers out there who ultimately only really, not only care, but their primary focus is the financial profile of the business. They will figure out how to run it if they like the numbers effectively. So the, the number of SKUs, I mean, like I said, it can be, if you just have an arbitrary number of SKUs that's important, it can massively oversimplify it. Because let's say I'm selling, I don't know, say mugs, for example, would be a good example. You could have like one product of mug and then you could have like different colors, different designs. So you could easily end up with a hundred SKUs from essentially exactly the same product, exactly the same supply chain. And there's, there's lots of other, like if you're selling clothing, for example, we're representing a business at the moment. He literally just sells socks, but there's tons of different SKUs in there because there's different colors, different sizes, male, female, kids. So you straight away end up with like 150 SKUs, but he's still just selling a sock. So yes, there are a lot of uh, particularly aggregators who care about the complexity, but if they buy, say, 100 businesses with 1,000 SKUs each, they're managing 100,000 SKUs. That's quite complex. If you're selling a business and let's say you have a thousand SKUs to a private equity firm, and this is one of three Amazon businesses they have in their portfolio, and they're going to bring in a CEO to operate the business or a general manager, or maybe they're going to bring it under their existing umbrella of companies they own, then it doesn't really matter. I guess the, the flip side of that is that doesn't literally just mean launch as many SKUs as you want. It doesn't matter. It does still have to make sense for the business. So if you're just selling a thousand completely different products that don't really have any correlation with each other and you're just selling it because you've managed to list it on your account, that's probably not really going to drive a huge amount of value. But if the SKUs make sense, like I said, like the different mug designs, different sock designs or whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. In that case, I think it it can make a lot of sense. But yeah, don't be discouraged by certain buyers who might be louder than others who 
say that they the number of SKUs is important because I've seen it in the past where people will hear hear that and then they'll turn off some of their lower selling SKUs and they'll say, well, I heard you can't have more than a hundred or fifty or ten. Mm. I'm sure you've heard all sorts of different numbers I have as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it doesn't really matter, but it does it does matter if you just have an unnecessarily large number or the opposite can also be true. You could just have one SKU and that could be quite risky because yeah. as we just spoke about with Amazon, maybe they take your SKU offline for a genuine reason or a not so genuine reason. And then your whole business is challenging. Whereas if you have, I don't know, say at least 10 SKUs and they sell equally proportionate amount each and you lose one, you've only lost 10% of revenue versus 100%. So there's lots of different factors that go into it. Hence yeah. why I don't like to oversimplify, but while avoiding saying like, it depends. But I'd say in general, <laughs> yeah. the number of SKUs you have doesn't matter as long as it makes sense for your business. For online sellers, nothing beats in-person learning and connecting. Join Ecom Events at one of their four events throughout the USA. Miami in January, San Diego in March, Minneapolis in July and New York City in October. The conference offers tips and tools to increase sales, food and drink, and real connections to other sellers and experts. Head over to e-comevents.com and register today with promo code AMAZINGFBA to save $50 off your ticket cost. That does make sense to me. And one thing that strikes me is there's a big difference between cutting the number of SKUs down because of some artificial number you've heard from an aggregator on a podcast versus you have, you know, as you, I like your scenario, which never happens, is you've got 10 SKUs, all of them doing roughly equal numbers in terms of revenue. And yeah, one of them goes it, down. it sounds great. The, the truth is it never, yeah, yeah, the truth is there's always that 80-20, isn't there? I mean, so I've, I've, I've had actually clients who went away and grat grat gratifyingly did what I suggested and do an 80-20 analysis. And lo and behold, it's, it's always, it's normally more extreme than 80-20. Like one person had 300 SKUs on their platform and like 10 of them did most of his sales, I think, and probably most of his profits. So what I would say is there's a bit of a difference between um, what you're saying about the, you know, aggregators want 10 SKUs or 100 or whatever, and therefore I'm going to cut off my lowest selling 300 or whatever. That's the difference between that and starving your best sellers of stock because you insist on restocking stuff that, that keeps, that stays in stock for nine months or something. So I, I do think there's still a case, isn't there, for that cutting out the lower sellers or the less profitable ones because it's always, it's an, it's an internal ASIC allocation question, I would say, which is quite different from artificial. For, for sure. But what I always say with like just exit planning in general is like, it should make logical sense. Like you should only exit plan your, the things you do to sell your business should be what you would do anyway. So in your example, it makes complete sense not to be selling 290 SKUs. If they're loads of hassle and they're making up 1% of your sales, then yes, you probably don't need to sell them. But the flip side is you don't need to stop selling SKUs because of what buyers say. Like yeah, one thing I've learned over the years, over a thousand deals is there's no, there's no business we've ever represented which everyone likes, regardless of how much I like it or you like it or whoever, it doesn't matter. There'll always be problems with everything. So you should kind of avoid the noise and just do what's best for your business. Because ultimately, you know your business better than anyone else does. You can hire a coach, you can join a mastermind, whatever it might be. You can get advice from experts, but you still have to be the one making the decisions ultimately. That makes sense. So now I like the phrase you said, very simple things you do to exit your business should be the same things you do anyway. A very good phrase. I would say, tell me your thoughts on this, that a flip side of that is in order to run your business well anyway, you should prepare for sale. Is that true? And, and in so f insofar as it's true, in what ways or is it not true? 
I think yes and no. So if you asked me this question 10 years ago when I was young and thought I was really smart, I, I would have said that there are, you do have to do it slightly differently. But because in, in theory, yes, there are things you should do to exit plan will increase the value of your business. But I think my belief now is I've got a bit older and I guess I've just seen a lot more. I feel like depending on the stage of your business, that does depend how much you should be thinking about the exit in mind. Because for example, one of the things we would talk about is like building building processes. So when someone comes in and acquires your business, you have in the theoretical world, you have a nice written manual or videos or whatever it might be of like, hey, here's how I run my business. The reality is, like you said, early on in your business, people tend to cut corners because the hardest thing when you're starting out is making money. So I think in the early stages of your business, so I would say, and again, this is somewhat arbitrary, but I say up to your first million dollars in revenue, you probably shouldn't worry too much about all of that stuff because a lot of the processes when it's just you, maybe your husband and wife team, brother, sister, brother, brother, whatever it might be. We see lots of like family teams or friends as, as teams, like a lot of the processes will be in your head, but given the choice of uh, say spending your weekend building out a new ad campaign or coming up with a new product or writing out your processes, in my mind, you should spend your time launching that new product, doing stuff that can drive revenue. So a lot of the things that are important to have prepared for a sale, I'm not suggesting you should do it last minute, but things like writing a, a manual probably is not that difficult. And also these things will change over time. What you're doing in year one of your business will almost definitely not be the same as year three. I know at FE International, for example, we're not an Amazon business, but we have tons and tons of processes written out. Almost all the processes we have today are not the same as three years ago. So things like that, yes, theoretically, you should have processes written out, but opportunity cost of writing out processes versus making more money, you should, you should always focus on making more money. Maybe I'll spend a little bit too much time in America where it's like capitalist culture, but I generally think that's the case most of the time. Like and money also just, it just solves a lot of problems. Like if you're making more money, you can then hire somebody to write out processes for you. You don't necessarily have to do it yourself. So ultimately, if you can focus on that revenue growth and gross profit and net profit growth, that solves a lot of other potential problems versus just checking every single box on the theoretical exit planning. That can be great, but that doesn't necessarily make your business worth substantially more versus a person who's just spent no time thinking about it at all and has doubled the size of their business while yours is somewhat flat while you're writing out processes. So yeah, it's, it's interesting observation. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to step on you there. Yeah, it is something I've seen in the mastermind. We had a guy do a seven-figure exit recently, and he's not a very processed kind of person. I think, to be fair, he's not exactly an example of how to do it because he knew in January he was constantly considering a sale and, and probably hadn't sorted out quite a lot of paperwork. That, and he was probably, I suppose, it was two brands that, that were just over the million-dollar sort of value mark and or revenue and probably, in the end, value as well. Um and so he was probably a little bit behind that curve, but I take the point that because he had focused on creating really desirable products with great listings and he had a knack for picking uh, markets well and, and doing a lot of branding work and messaging well, 
that you're quite right that had driven the business to the point where it was worth the sweat of sitting down with teams of people um going through everything with a fine tooth comb and, and running to catch up because in the end the business was worth more despite the fact that he was a little bit messy with his paperwork and that's not untypical for entrepreneurs anyway i think is it so talking of which then let, let's let's say let's let's nuance this a bit then so if you're below a million dollars revenue sort of ballparks or rule of thumb focus on growing it not preparing it great great point but presumably we should be maybe not obsessing about sops which as you say the way you did it in the first year is probably something you should never write down because it might get kicked off amazon if anyone found out about it right so you're probably best to just kind of leave that in the history but nevertheless there must be some ways in which we can sort of prepare for a sellable business now even if we're just nearing the the million dollar revenue mark without getting obsessive where's that middle ground where we prepare without getting distracted yeah so it definitely is like I've definitely gone between the two extremes of like theoretical exit planning and like no exit planning. In the reality, you have to meet somewhere in the middle. So things like documentation is super important. And I just know myself, like every time I do my tax return, I'm like, oh, I wish I saved down these like forms or whatever it might be. So keeping documentation is super important. So anything related to financials, anything you've paid for basically, uh, anything, maybe you've got like angry letters from Amazon or suppliers or whatever it might be. You need to like save all this stuff. So any any sort of documentation, anything, maybe you have like trademarks or copyrights, company registration documents, all those kind of things are important to like keep and make sure you keep track of. The, the biggest problem we see with say almost 100% of Amazon businesses we work with, regardless of the size, is financials. They tend to be a complete mess. Not that that's the technical term, but they're just generally quite messy. So yes, the exactly. earlier in your business, and again, this is my point about running a business well, you kind of have to do this anyway, but a lot, but from a sellability perspective, you absolutely have to know your numbers. There's no compromise there. Do you need a hundred page written, written manual about how to run your business? No. Do your financials need to be clean? A hundred percent. Yes. And if they're not, and if they're unknowns, you're ultimately not going to sell your business for as much because buyers are just going to take the worst case scenario. If you're like, oh yeah, this cost was between like a thousand and ten thousand, but I can't prove it. Yeah, they're gonna assume it was ten yeah. or ten thousand. So it's a little bit of a balance. So I say documentation is super important. The earlier you get in the habits of kind of tracking your financials properly, tracking anything that happens in properly, the the better. If you turn up five years into the business and like, oh yeah, now I'm gonna hire a bookkeeper and start doing accounting, it's gonna be it's gonna be a mess and it's gonna be problematic. So say financials documentation are the most important. Beyond that, I don't think there's a huge amount that's like absolutely essential. I think more at a high level in terms of if you're ever planning on selling a business, I always say to people, it's really important to figure out what you're actually trying to achieve um, and then work backwards from there. And then that kind of determines my advice. So for example, if you want to sell your business for, I use dollars just because you're in, I'm in the US, most people in the industry tend to be US. Let's say you want to sell your business for a million dollars or $10 million or $100,000, those are completely different, completely different levels. So if you don't know exactly what you need to get there, then it might start changing your plan. So for example, if your business is currently worth a million dollars and you want to get to $10 million, then the kind of things you might need to do to get from a million to 10, valuation might be quite different from say, a million to 1.5. It's important to understand where you're trying to get to because my advice would somewhat change. If it's like currently at a million, when it gets 10, you should really be focusing on revenue growth. You probably need to do something drastically different 
within your business to get to that 10 million level. If you want to go from one to say 1.2 million, then maybe it's time to start working on documentation. Those small things really do start making a difference. So I, I used an arbitrary number of a million dollars in, in sales, depending where you live in the world, you may not need a million dollars. Or if you live in New York or San Francisco or London or wherever it might be, maybe you need, you need more than that. And that's a very personal thing. And I guess I'm not a financial advisor, but that number has to be something that you're happy with and you can work backwards from there. So I always get, have people like think about what they want to achieve. And then it helps to talk to a broker or an M&A advisor. I usually think at least a year before you want to sell, because even the best business will have things that need to be prepared. And we can tell you specifically what you need to do. You don't pay us anything until your business sells. So it's in our best interest to give you the best information possible. So it's worth having that conversation at least a year before so you can start prepping. There's never any obligation to have that conversation. So say a year before and give you some specific things, but also have a think about your goal because what what might be a lot of money to me might not be a lot of money to you and, and vice versa. So yeah. it's important to be very personal. Again, no, no mastermind coach, course, banker, broker can tell you how much money is the right amount for you and your family. That's thing you have to make your own decision on. Absolutely. I mean, the best they could do is ask you a question that, like, and then suggest you go and talk to your accountant in many cases or an independent financial advisor or, or both, I, I guess, in the end, right? It's like, so what, why do you even want to leave, exit your business? And, and the answer is often, I don't. And then, but the money looks really good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I've seen people saying, I really don't want to sell my business. And then I meet them a few months later. Well, we haven't been in the mastermind for a couple of months with each other. And, and uh, oh, you sold. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I've seen that one before. So I guess it's it's a quite an organic, subtle thing, isn't it? The actual buying decision. And the number is possibly a little bit more measurable by an accountant or an, an FE, but only slightly. I mean, how, how IFA, I should say, sorry. So how big a house do you really need? Need is a relative term, isn't it? Do you need to live in San Francisco? I, I live in in Hampstead in New York in not in New York I live in Hampstead in London but it's the same kind of cost of on a Greenwich village or the wrong bit of San Fran do I really need to live in London well my wife does for her work I, I don't so those are very personal questions right that coming back to your simple point about financial records just again your really excellent very simple point I think is a very valid one do things that you were going to do anyway now documentation is something you probably wouldn't do as early on the, on the operation side very good point point taken but I think getting clean financials if you don't have those uh, in this kind of business in, a, in an e-commerce business specifically I don't think you can get away with that anyway I think your business is bound to be less effective than you think it is <laughs> if you don't know your numbers whether you're starting off a retail arbitrage with a few hundred SKUs and a few hundred dollars a month even then you you need to know your 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 gross margins i think otherwise i don't think you can run the business so for sure particularly point. as you scale and you want to start running things like paid ads mm -hmm. if you don't know your numbers it's just a recipe for disaster but yeah. i say a lot of people don't understand like the overheads and stuff like that as well yes. mo most people understand things like return on ad spend because amazon kind of calculates it for you it's like right. okay i spent yeah. i spent a hundred dollars and i made a thousand dollars in revenue and then a lot yeah. of people will be like oh i have a profitable business Hmm. without actually really thinking about the 
rest of the supply chain and yeah. operations that go into I, it. So I, exactly, and I would be very, very careful. I mean, Amazon does actually. They used to with ACOS, which is uh, advertising cost of sales. Which there, I'm not going to get into the detail of this, but yes, uh, kind of yes and no. But the return on ad spend is BS because what it means is revenue you get back on ad spend that has nothing to do with whether you made a profit or not, and it's not in Amazon's interest to know. And they don't know what your cost price is, and you probably don't want to tell them. You don't want to help them to reverse engineer your products and private label it themselves. Although I think that's less of a threat to your business than giving all of your profit, like 100% of it, to Amazon in the form of ad spend. So I totally agree with you there. So it's just a just a plea to anyone listening. If you don't know your numbers, for goodness sake, please, for your own sanity, go and know your gross profit and then compare it to your ad spend. And you may well find that you are working for Amazon. There you go lecture over but really important point so we're going to talk in a in a bit about um, brokers versus aggregators because there, there are some differences versus or the difference between them and and how that might work but for the moment just to wrap this segment up so that people have got a chance to get and absorb what we're saying just tell us quickly what uh, services you offer people at fe international for amazon business owners yeah sure so like i mentioned right at the start of the episode we represent sellers so the, the first thing we offer to absolutely everybody is a free evaluation. So you, you can reach out, go to our website, navigate to the seller website section, re- reach out to the team, like request evaluation. We'll put that together for free for you. So to my point about where you might be in your business, I, I can't tell you without going through that, that process. And you also probably will not know where you are. Go through that process, get a free evaluation. We'll tell you what's missing from your business, if there's something missing. And then we can have a conversation from there about what a future exit might look like. But essentially, our service always starts with pre-evaluation. There's no obligation. There's no hidden costs. And then on the flip side, if you're a buyer and you want to acquire a business, we won't represent you, but we have businesses we're representing that you can see. And if you just want more content around the industry, we have a lot of that on our blog. We have white papers you can download, depending particularly what you're trying to learn. Excellent. Yeah. So I imagine your blog, if you've been in business quite a few years, there must be lots and lots of sort of value buried in there. So it's probably worth a good poke around if you're serious about this area, I think. Well, look, I know we're going to talk about the aggregator versus, if that's a fair word, all aggregators and brokers and the differences and, and how that landscape looks in the next episode. But just to give people an absorbable chunk we'll finish there so thomas thank you so much for sharing your insights on preparing to get the best price you can for your amazon business really helpful stuff yeah thanks so much thanks for listening to the 10k collective podcast for six and seven figure amazon sellers i really hope you found the show helpful to you please don't forget to subscribe to the show and if you're on apple podcasts please do leave us a quick star rating It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.